Well, this morning we are continuing in the series of messages leading up to next week about Jesus is better. We focus as we focus on Christ. We're focusing on the truth that he was God's greatest gift, his humility, his birth, the adoration of this child and his work, how it delivers us. And we remember that no fruit of the month club or a car or a karaoke machine compares. Jesus is just simply better. He's better. And he's better for a myriad of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is because of the thing that screams from our heart even when we don't know how to articulate it. It's the thirst of our soul. It is the longing for hope. It's the anticipation that John 10.10, when Jesus said... He said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and may have it abundantly. We want that. We want it to be real in our life. We want to experience that. We want the actuality of it. So we're familiar with the longing, but our culture has dumbed down hope to something that's not Christian, not biblical hope. Biblical hope talks about hope in a whole different way. It doesn't say, I sure hope I get the gift that I've asked for at Christmas. I I sure hope I get a raise. I hope things turn out okay. Christian hope looks different than that. Hope is an eager expectation of something far better becoming a reality, becomes our reality because it's based on the character of God. What God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. He's going to do it for us. So our hope is not in just something. Our hope is in someone and what he promises to do. We talk about faith and the hope and they dovetail together. But often we don't know why is it actually that Jesus is better, has a better hope? How does this actually spell out. And so we're going to look at three things, three reasons why Jesus is better because of the real hope that he will deliver to your life. And that's what we're going to do today in Hebrews 9. Now, before we do, it's a big chunk of scripture. I don't know if you've read Hebrews, but Hebrews is deep water. There's a lot of things about the Old Testament that you may not be familiar with, And so we're going to give you a brief about that today. But one of the best ways to do this is just to look at one verse in chapter 8. So look at your Bible, chapter 8, verse 7. One verse. For if that first covenant... Now, the first covenant... Everybody look right here. First covenant is the covenant... God gave to Moses for the Israelites, law-based, by faith, sacrifice. That's Old Testament. Rules and tabernacle sacrifice with animals. This is what he says. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. So what he's saying is all through the ages, the Old Testament was always pointing forward that something better was coming. 
Something better was promised. And we, today, you and I, are benefactors of that better day. So I want to show you in chapter 9 what he talks about. We're going to pick up in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, some of you have tabernacle, that's, that is a mobile temple, if you will. A more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, thus saying, The blood of the covenant has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I'm going to pause. We're reading a bunch of things here. But let me just get you the brief version. Under the old covenant... Sacrifices were made for sin. And a close look at the Bible, you'll see it's bloody. There's lots of blood. Sacrifice. And God's people and all the vessels in and around the tabernacle were sprinkled. And a hyssop branch was used and cast ashes and blood toward the people to remind them. And it was done over and over and over again about the need for forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Now let's pick up in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every every year with the blood of not his own. For then he, meaning Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed man to die once, 
And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Deep theological things here. But today your heart cries for hope. You want to know, is there a sure promise that God's going to do? Yes, and it's based upon what the author says in this chapter. There's big, deep things regarding your life and your sin and your failure and your conscience in this text. So, likely, this was a Jewish priest who came to Christ. And what he does is he reads from the Old Testament and he pulls it forward for us to pass along a reminder that year after year, day after day, under the Old Covenant, sacrifice was made. And it was for the sins that were done unintentional. So God's people in that day was constantly reminded, we fall short, we fall short, we fall short. And he does this to contrast things. Old to the new, weak to a new day, the strong. So there's real hope that spills out of this passage. So why is this hope? Why is it in Jesus How does this work actually better? How is that what Jesus did better? I want to show you three things. There's some sub things, but I want you to listen carefully. Number one, Jesus is better because he perfectly did in heaven what priests could only do imperfectly on earth. Now, when you look at the Bible, it talks a lot about blood and sacrifice and life. You cannot overlook the centrality of blood and life. Listen to Leviticus. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. Leviticus 17, 11. Blood represents life. And without blood we don't live. You really don't. No blood, you don't live. Now let, me, let me give you an illustration. It's a weak one, but I want to give you an illustration of how this works. Any of you have teenage sons or daughters who drive your vehicles, or maybe they drive their own vehicle. They can run out of gas, and you can walk up and put gas in it, and the car's going to go. But what keeps Brian Fannin awake at night is that my sons will never check the oil in their car. And if you don't check the oil in your car, when it locks up, You're done. If the car can be even repaired at all, the engine locks up. You, here's a lesson for life. You should check the oil in your car at least once a month, if not once a week. You should do that. Without oil, the car stops. Without blood, you don't live. So there's lots of this in the scripture. Furthermore, the blood sacrifice of the Jewish people was directly related to the freedom that the Israelites had. And it sprang from the Egypt experience of the first Passover. 
Now, if you know the story on that night, each family was to share a meal of lamb. And as they observed the Passover, they placed some of the blood on the sides and the top of the doorposts to keep the family from losing their firstborn son. And the people of Egypt who, didn't, who did not were struck by this plague and many died. The blood and the sacrifice represented life and death as well as freedom from the hand of slavery. And then there's this, a blood sacrifice also included and was a constant reminder to the one who was giving the sacrifice. The price of the animal involved represented a price that had to be paid by someone, namely the person providing the offering. Each time a blood sacrifice was made, the one who gave it was reminded, there's a cost to my sin. And every year on the Day of Atonement, one time a year the Jews observed this, the high priest, the people would gather and there was sacrifice made. And that one day a year he would go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and there blood was sprinkled for sin. Verse 22 says it here well. It sums up everything that was said before. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. See, Scripture points that there's life in the blood. But sin brings something different for us. Sin brings shame. Sin brings nakedness. And we see that in the beginning We see it literally that Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and they hid themselves. And when God comes calling in the garden, sometimes we think that it's geography. God knows everything. He knows where they are. But when he says, where are you now, Adam? He's not asking about geography. He's asking about, where are you now, Adam? Where where are you spiritually now? See, our conscience is stained. We get aware that God's holy. No matter how much we try to push that down, though we try to suppress it, we work real hard to ignore it. There's this reality that screams to us, even if you are an unbeliever, what if there's a God? What if all of this is here because of God? I'm going to give an account to God. What does imperfection say to perfection? And Adam and Eve's nakedness revealed their actual need for clothes, which God provided, and maybe the first sacrifice to give them animal skins for clothes. See, Jesus is better because he didn't do on earth the same as all the other priests. He did in heaven what they could not do perfectly on earth. But there's more than that. See, Jesus is better because he presented in heaven an offering of himself, the one perfect sacrifice. Now, look in verse 11 and 12. Christ appears as the high priest of the good things to come. And then through the greater and more perfect tent, that one not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by 
his own blood, securing an eternal uh, redemption. And then he repeats that in verse 12. And then 24 and 26 says it again. What Jesus does is he takes his blood and goes into the presence of God into heaven, into the original tabernacle to offer sin for you, sacrifice for you. What he presented was his own blood. And there are two reasons why he did this. Number one, he did it for your sins. Now, unlike the Old Testament, the acts, the acts of sin in the Old Testament, as you see in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, these were the things that were done. They were not deliberate. And they did it over and over and over again. And the one time a year was for absolution of their sin. But they were constantly reminded of it, that they needed it. But when Christ presented himself, he does it for the acts of your sin, those things in your life, been away from God. It's what we do when we're not satisfied with God. He offered for that, and he offered for your your bent towards sin, your sin nature. Unlike the old covenant. Secondly, he does it for this reason. He does it one time. Now, this is important. One time for all, for all of your sin. The Old Testament priests went into the earth, earthly holy of holies one time a year. And this is emphasized here. Once a year, over and again, back in, back out, back in, back out. Constant reminder, blood needed to pay for the sin. Jesus, in this passage, it says, where the earthly priest went once a year, he went once for all. One time. One time. And there's a great emphasis in the book of Hebrews on this once for all theme. You see it, chapter 7, verse 27. Then again in chapter 9, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 26. Verse 27, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 10. He did not want us to miss this. Jesus offered himself in the heavenly tabernacle for your sin one time. Why? Because that was the perfect sacrifice and it was all that is necessary. That is what makes us right. It matters Because we need to understand why is Jesus on the cross calling out, it is finished. Why would he do such a thing? Because it was done. All of your sin paid for in full in that moment. And it has deep implications for us. Your sins are gone. And your Savior did more than just offer it. Glance down at your Bible. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. One one chapter over. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, why do we sit down? Brad talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it warrants a good reminder. 
the priest stood daily and offered sacrifice. Jesus offers one and then he sits down. You only sit down when the work is done. It's done. If you hold that Jesus is your Savior, your sins have been paid for in full. And sometimes we lose complete sight of this. There's more than that. We sometimes think about our sins being paid in full and we think, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus did that. He just kind of bought my pardon. Jesus bought a pardon for me. It's as if God's looking at me and he says, well, I'll take the blood of Jesus. You're guilty, but I'll take it and it kind of covers you and you're okay. You kind of squeeze in. But when you talk in that fashion, you do a grave injustice to the New Testament concept of a perfect sacrifice made for you. Salvation is not a pardon. Jesus is better because he purchased for you much more than pardon from sin. And if you call yourself a Christian, you need to understand that there's a vast difference between outward outward cleanliness and being transformed from within. I want to show you what I'm talking about. And again, this is not the best illustration, but I want to give you an illustration that is real for all of us. I used to interview people a lot. People for jobs, for good jobs. And normally, everybody showed up in their Sunday best. I remember one particular day, I was interviewing a young man and he showed up, and man, he, he was dressed to the nines. I mean, he, he, everything was in place. Hair combed, well-shaven, perfect suit, red tie, shoes shine. We usually sat in a small room, table maybe three feet wide, other people in the room with me. And as the interview began, it didn't take long. Suddenly, I began to smell something. Now, you know what B.O. smells like. I hope you do. It is human rot at its best. That's what it is. It's the thing that you can't get out of your nose. And this guy had it. And not only that, that particular day, I don't know if he was nervous. He didn't eat breakfast. The interview was in the morning. But when you don't eat, one of the things that happens sometimes is your bad breath does not come from your mouth. It comes from your what? Your stomach. All levels of concentration was gone in the room. I could not cope. It didn't matter how he looked. Now, now, now guys in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Now, Bigney can hold his arms up like this. I can tell him, say, look under my arms. I don't sweat like that. I don't, see? But ask my wife. After, an, after a workout, I can clear the room. All right. Why does that happen? Because we are fallen in more ways than we know. We stink. Now, I praise God 
for good deodorant. And please don't write me saying I need a crystal and rub it under my arm or go two weeks without, without deodorant. I've done it, and I about killed my family. It just doesn't work, all right? does not work. Maybe for you, not for me. Why does this matter? It matters because there's a vast difference between what you look like and actually what's coming out of you. There's more to being a Christian than forgiveness to pardon. He gives us so much more. He gives us identity. You've been placed in Christ. Being moral, people are moral. There's lots of moral people. Being moral or acting like a Christian does not make you one any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Jesus is better only when Jesus is Lord. And when your faith and trust is placed in him and him alone for your righteousness, that you get before God standing right because you've been placed in Christ, you've been made new. So many of us look for identity in so many different things. I don't know where you look for identity. Is it your job? Do you look for identity in the accomplishments of your children or maybe you on the job? How much you earn? Where you vacation? What you drive? Where you live? Who you know? We do this. It's what we do. We attach attach identity to all kinds of things. But God never intended For you as a believer to live that way, your identity is rooted in what's seen here in Hebrews 9. You are in Christ Jesus standing faultless before God. Not because of you, but because what Jesus did. He's better. He's purchased more for you than pardon from sin. He also did this. He he purchased A conscience that remembers that God dealt fully with your sin. Of all the things of comparing the old sacrifice to the sacrifice of Christ, this is a big one. We need to understand that our conscience is to be dealt with. It was dealt with. Now look at 9.14. I want you to see what I'm talking about. In chapter 9, verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what this means is this. You may not realize this, but when Christ paid the penalty for your sin, it was not just to pay for Oh, you get by. You just kind of do your best. And when you fail, you're just not a very good Christian. That's not what the Scripture teaches. What the Scripture shows us is this, that when Christ died for you and offered his blood in the holy tabernacle before God, it was meant to purify your conscience. And the purification of conscience means this, that the guilt that you carry around all the time, the kind of stuff that you walk around with, you're not a very good Christian. Poor little old me. Some of you, some of you, this is what you do. You describe yourself this way. You describe yourself this way. Does this sound familiar? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm not a very good Christian. 
That might be accurate, but that's a horrible description of a Christian. Do you know why? Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Because in the holy tabernacle, he purchased that even in the midst of all the weaknesses you have, you can stand knowing in your conscience that you are right before God. You're right. You're blood-bought. They say, well, Brian, I don't, I don't know. Does that really, is that something that I deal with? I'm not real sure. I want to illustrate to show you how many of us actually deal with this with a conscience doesn't walk around knowing that we're clean. That's how it works. So today's a pretty good day. You came to church, right? You've read your Bible. You've prayed. And so tonight, let's just pretend for a moment you go home and you know you got a, a trip tomorrow you got to do for your job. And so it's been a pretty good day today and you... You Just before you go to bed, you want to get up early the next day so you can spend some time with God before you have to leave. You say to your son, son, trash is full. I just noticed this. And you know, Rover will get in the trash if you don't take it out before you go to bed. You go upstairs. Next morning you get up, you come downstairs. Trash is everywhere. Dirty diapers have been chewed up and walked through. Tracking all over the house. Coffee crumbs strewn about on the ceiling. You, you don't know how it happened, but it's there. You don't need coffee now. Because you are so angry, you got to clean up all this mess. So you clean up all the mess. Everybody else is asleep. You know I have no time now to pray. You have no time to read your Bible. Out the door you go. You get to the airport. On the way to the airport, this is what you think. You think, no one listens to me. My family is ungrateful. And by the time you arrive at your your gate, you kind of calm down a little bit. And wouldn't you know, you look up, and right in front of you is a very attractive person who's not your mate. You didn't ask for this. You try to look away, but your mind drifts into a fantasy world just for a little bit. You try to shake that off, and then you have to go down that gangplank and get on that plane, and you know what it's like to walk the aisle of shame past breakfast in first class, and they're all sitting there, and you have to walk to the back, and you're thinking, my company never pays for me to sit up front. I'm in the back of the bus all the time. And then you plop down in your seat. Close your eyes. Only to open them and the person right next to you has a book. And on the front of the book, it says, Searching for God. What a morning. Now, when I ask you, you be honest. God knows if you're telling the truth. In that moment, do you believe 
that you're able to talk boldly about the love of Jesus or because of how far wrong your morning has gone, do you have a sense that you're not clean enough to do it? If that's the truth, you have a performance mentality residing in you to one degree or another. You think that Jesus paid the price for your sin, but now you kind of think it's up to you to make sure that you're worthy to talk about him. Jesus is better because he purchases a conscience that dealt with your sin. So I want to ask you an important question. Right now in heaven, right in this moment, what has the greatest weight in heaven? The wickedness of your sin and my sin or the purifying power of the blood of Jesus? Which has more power? God dealt with your sin when Jesus went to the cross for you. And when you trust him, you can understand why John Piper says John, uh, uh, Romans eight thirty two is the most important verse for him in the Bible. Where he said he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things are ours, not because of our performance. All things are ours because of the blood of Jesus. See, there's greater freedom to obey when you know your conscience has been made right. God broke the power of sin, which is death, at the cross. And he also broke in that the bondage of you just continually giving yourself to sin. He broke it. The presence of Christ is in your life. And so you don't have to work, walk around all the time just thinking, I'm, I'm just lousy at this. You should walk around all the time saying, praise God that he rescued me from me. And that's why Jesus is better. He, clean, he cleanses us. Finally this. You and I need to understand that he purchased us more. He purchased us a future of perfect standing and unending love. Christmas is about the coming of Christ. It's about God with us. With us. It's about this new hope. But we live about today. Our focus so much is about right now, the misery that we know right now, avoiding the pain that we've got right in this moment. We get fixated on it, and it's one of the, the, the ways that we, I think, we just cope. We all know we're going to one day die, but we just don't know. We'll just think about that one day. We don't know when, think about it one day. And so we, we go through our life never understanding that the hope that God provides is not only a hope right now, but a hope for that day. That day. There is a second coming. And he sums it up in verses 27 and 28 where he says, Just as it appointed a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await, are eagerly waiting 
before him. Why do we live thinking that it's all about the here and now? Yes, we need and want hope right now, but our hope is an understanding that this is not all of your life. It was never meant to be. And one of the parts of your fallen nature, the brokenness of sin, is that you forgot you're going to live forever somewhere. Some of you have this idea that if Jesus is coming again, that he's going to look at you at that coming and go, I know you tried. You're a pretty good old boy. Come on in. But you're going to notice here, that's not what he says. He says there is, we die once and after that comes judgment. At that moment, at that moment, there's going to be judgment. And at that moment, for those who eagerly await, there's going to be unbelievable joy. Joy that you can't grasp. That the perfect offering of the Son of God is sufficient for your sins. I'm going to ask the servers to come right now. And as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want to point you to one more thing in this passage. I want you to look down at chapter 9, verse 23. When the writer says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Have you ever, just consider for a moment. Sure, the things that are created on earth are weak. The priests are weak. The elements are weak. The tabernacle's weak. But in heaven... Is not everything perfect? Why would the Son of God need to be going into the perfect tabernacle and offering blood there to purify? It's because you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. He opened the door into the presence of the Father. In those moments, He purchased for us. All of it. All of your sin was in the future. Every bit of it. When Christ died, all of your sin was in the future. And He paid the full penalty for that sin. I'm going to ask the servers, to begin passing through, serving the elements. And I want to tell you, if you are here and you're a Christian, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you're a guest and you know the Lord, we want to invite you to join with us. There's no magic, though, in this bread or this cup. It represents the body and blood of Jesus. And it's a good reminder for all of us. What Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, 
In chapter 15, he said, If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Your Christianity is not just about right here, right now. Christ bought for you fellowship with the Father, an unending love for the rest of your life, all of your life, today and all of eternity. It's what He did. We anticipate that day, we eagerly wait. But we also understand what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter that we often read at weddings. He closes that chapter and he says, right now we have faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why would he say such a thing? The greatest is love. It's because of this. At the coming of Jesus on that day, When it comes, no more faith is necessary. No more hope it's going to be realized. The only thing that's going to swim over you in that moment is that you are loved unimaginably. And all of eternity you will know that love. And that is why it's the greatest. Jesus is better. Father, we we praise you and we thank you. As the elements continue to come, we reflect that we're purchased by the body and blood of Jesus, not anything else. You bought us not just pardon, but a new life, a new identity, cleansing of our sin and our conscience. Lord, help us to live in light of that. In Christ's name.